Hello, Tiger Nation. I am Byron Hulsey, headmaster at Woodbury Forest School, and I would like to welcome you to the Woodbury podcast series. This podcast consists of informal yet substantive conversations with alumni, faculty, staff, and students. The conversations explore how Woodbury's core values empowered alumni to build a solid foundation for their lives, how those core values are taught today by Woodbury teachers, and how those values are put into practice by today's students. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Woodbury Podcast. Today, it's a great pleasure and privilege to have Matt Bozen join the, the podcast. Matt came to Woodbury in 2001 and has served faithfully in the history department all the way up until, let's see, that would have been the summer of 2015 when he became dean of faculty. And this year, starting July 1, transitioned back to the faculty and is now full-time in, in the history department, one of our great teachers and and coaches and uh, citizens here at the Woodbury community. So, Matt, it's a great pleasure to have you here. Thanks for taking a little bit of time. Thanks for having me. You're very, very welcome. I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation. Let's start with why did you come to Woodbury and, and why have you stayed? Two big questions, and I'll try to be as concise as I can. Uh, I finished graduate school in May of 1998. My wife and I met and went to graduate school in Charlottesville and had no previous connections to Virginia for our time in Charlottesville. We left Virginia in a U-Haul in June of that year thinking it was only a matter of time before we were going to come back. So we had a, um, a real attachment to this area. We spent three, four years total actual up in New England, a uh, year finishing graduate school. My wife had a, an internship at a hospital and I was finishing my graduate work, um, my research for my graduate work. And then I taught for three years in New Hampshire. The second we got to New Hampshire, I taught at Phillips Exeter Academy which is a much, much bigger school, a much more one-dimensional school. Uh, it's a, really an academic institution more than anything else. It culturally diverges in significant ways from, from Woodbury. After about a year there, we realized that that was not a good fit. And more than anything else, we realized that we wanted to be at a place that took the, the notion that, that we're educating young people outside of the classroom, we're getting to know them outside of the classroom, we're investing in their lives outside of the classroom. We wanted, we wanted a place that, to be in a place that took that seriously. I had heard about Woodbury from a graduate of the class of 87, I think, who's actually acquaintance of yours, Bill Sayer. Oh, absolutely, yep. Who had married one of my wife's classmates. Uh-huh. Through her, her conversation with, with Bill's wife, he found that, that we were act, actively thinking, and he called me. I was on vacation up in Michigan in 2000, and he insisted on talking to me in the middle of my vacation for over an hour on the phone about why I had to think about Woodbury. And oh, that's awesome. The more that I heard about it, the more I realized that it, it not only did it, did it sort of check the geographic box, but it also resonated with some of the more philosophical issues that I just raised. I wrote a letter to Dennis Campbell, the then headmaster, I was in Charlottesville that summer and spent a day in the summer of 2000 during, it was just the end of sports camp, I think. Met Dennis Campbell and then through fortunate coincidence, there was an opening in his department and I was hired by January 1st of that year. So I came, to answer your question maybe directly, I came, certainly the initial inspiration did have something to do with geography, but I think I did early on have a sense initially from Bill and then of course from, from Dennis Campbell um, that philosophically this place did really line up with, with what my wife and I were looking for. 
And have you found that to generally be the case in reality after having been here? What, what, what are the various reasons why you've stayed for as long as you've stayed? That's a more complicated question. There's a lot more to, to, that, to that answer. The initial reason that we stayed in the very early years had to do with family. My son was two years, a little over two years old when we arrived here. We had my daughter, Emily, about a year after our arrival in the, in the spring of 2002. And this proved to be a wonderful place to raise a family. And at that point, with two young kids before they're in school, um, you don't really have the luxury of, of thinking about, you know, if you've got a workable system and, and you're able to manage sort of the challenges of raising a young family and, and you know, finding a, a certain degree of professional satisfaction, this place just worked. And it worked largely because it was such a wonderful place to raise a family. I'd be remiss if I didn't say a word about the fact that we do have a somewhat unusual family, family situation, which has everything to do with our initial attachment to Woodbury. Uh, my son was diagnosed with autism a little over a year after we arrived, so it was about Christmas of 2003, and the school community turned itself inside out, really, mm. to, to support us in both tangible ways, in terms of, I, I didn't step back formally from any of my responsibilities, but I, I was provided and was made to feel like I could have a have a flexible approach to some of my responsibilities that was sort of above and beyond. And that didn't just last for a few weeks. It wasn't seen as an emergency. I still think to this day that I wasn't asked to be an AM until about I'd, until I'd been here about a decade. And I, although Joe Coleman never specifically said that to me, I'm fairly certain that that had to do with the fact that the school was attended to the fact that they didn't want to add more onto my plate. Yeah. There were certainly personal mm -hmm factors involved that I can't ignore. As the situation with Zach stabilized over time, my daughter grew up, we, it became much more of a conscious decision to stay. That had more, I think, more to do with the school. And the school, in many ways, really did fulfill the original hopes that we had had for it when we arrived in 2001. We, up at Exeter, my wife and I were very, very unusual and kind of seen by some of the other faculty is a bit, maybe a bit rogue in our orientation. We'd have students in our apartment, our faculty apartment on dorm pretty frequently. In fact, very frequently. We were on duty several times, a couple, a couple times a week, and it wasn't rare for us to have kids, kids there, you know, every time we were on duty. And that just didn't happen there. Mm -hmm. And we started shortly after we came here um, having our boys over every Wednesday night for cookies, mm -hmm. which is now a 20 plus year tradition. When you say our boys, who do you mean? Our advisees. We've had them over every Wednesday night since I think our second or third year here, and that, that's going on 20 years, and now we have my classes over occasionally, and as, as anyone who's familiar with Woodbury knows, is, is more of the norm rather than, than the exception. But that's just one way that we felt like we culturally were a better fit for Woodbury. I think that there was a period of time where we felt as if there were, you know, I felt actually in the history department to, to provide an example that the place was perhaps a little bit, perhaps sure of itself. In some of my early remarks to the faculty in my first year as dean, I, I made the comment that there wasn't a whole lot of distance in terms of the, the school's self-image between what the school was and what the school ought to be. And there was a short time there where my wife and I were a little... I wouldn't say frustrated with it in any serious way, but we were looking for a little more dynamic culture, a little more, little more sense of, of possibilities that might lie beyond pretty limited horizons. Beginning in the, 
around the time of your appointment, Byron, I think the school in the years surrounding that, and including the years, couple years before, and certainly the couple years after, the school did begin to demonstrate some of that dynamism that really made it clear to us that this was a place that we wanted to, where we really wanted to stay, and we wanted to be part of that part of that change. My service as dean for eight years was obviously personally a big a big part of that. We'll come back to the world of uh, of, of teaching and learning and, and what your goals are with, with the classes that you teach, but let's talk a little bit about um, about your time as, as, as dean, uh, just so all the listeners know, we didn't have a dean of faculty at Woodbury for, for many years, and it, it struck me in my first year as, as headmaster that it was really going to be helpful to me as, as head to um, have someone very close to me that I could kind of count on to help me um, lead the faculty, support the faculty, care the faculty, and Woodbury language, know, challenge, and love the faculty, to help me with faculty recruitment and retention, uh, but, but really to help also manage and, and support and nurture relationships with folks on the faculty who are the daily deliverers of the school's um, mission. Um, so shout out to all the Woodbury faculty who've made Woodbury such a special place over the years. And, and Matt, you had a really central hand in, in that leadership for, for eight years. Um, what was that like to serve as, as dean of the faculty? I'm sorry you had to put up with me. So <laughs> What was it like? Well, that was that was obviously just a, a, an intolerable bird that at some point had to had to had to shed had to that. End. Yeah, yeah. You had um, to pull the plug on that. I mean, you the emerging dynamism that I spoke about a few seconds ago. I'd been on the faculty when I became dean for four, exactly 14 years. The history department, for example, had been teaching pretty much the same curriculum since I had arrived, and I was looking for. I had an itch to 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 play some sort of different role to be engaged with the institution from a different angle. Your offer, I still remember the, the day I came in to talk to you about something that was, it's our first substantive conversation after you became head of school, um, and I came in with a very small, probably meaningless topic to discuss, and we started talking about this, and it really was an extraordinary going home to my wife and um, and talk, talking to her about it. For me, it was an extraordinarily wonderful opportunity at exactly the right time. Because I really felt as if I wanted to contribute in a different way. I felt as if I hoped that I had something to contribute. Mm. And the conversations that we had, basically, I didn't have to sort of slot myself into a pre a pre-existing box, right? This was a new position. Yeah. You and I talked about what would this mean on a day-to-day basis. You gave me extraordinary freedom, especially early on, to determine how I used my time. For eight years, for the entire duration um, of my time in the dean's office, it was a blessing to be able to identify issues that I felt required attention, to be able to think very, very broadly, far beyond the confines of, of my individual classroom in Anderson Hall, about where Woodbury happened to be at a particular moment and where we might be down the road, and to think about what I might be able to do to, in conversation with the department chairs, in conversation with individual faculty, to make that happen. That's a, an opportunity that very few independent school teachers have the opportunity to take advantage of in the course of a career. In all sincerity, we'll always be grateful for that. There were several surprises that, 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 that went along with that, with those eight years. I found myself 
When I started, the started in the position, I was thinking that faculty recruitment was going to be something that was going to be very unnatural to me. Mm -hmm. uh, that was not going, I, was, I felt really, yeah, that I was going to be a little, have to be a little bit too much of a salesman and that was going to not really be, it was going to, I was going to have to force it a little bit. And Whatever you're selling, I'm buying. So, so. <laughs> well, the, the, the funny thing was, as early as the first year, and I actually started faculty recruitment during my last year as a teacher. Right. Your first year right. as head of school. From the very beginning, it, it, it became my, what I found to be my, my most, most, both my favorite part of the job and also the most rewarding part of the job. Mm -hmm. I think it became my favorite part of the job because I found it very natural and easy after having served on the faculty for 14 years and coached and done duty on the dorm and served as an advisor. I could speak very authentically to what it was, to, to the world that I was introducing these people to. I didn't have to be a salesman at all. I could speak. And I found myself increasingly comfortable over time, framed in the, in the correct way to talk about Woodbury, where Woodbury needed to grow and how it needed to grow. And I also quickly realized that in some ways, those conversations about Woodbury's areas for growth proved to be the most productive and fruitful in terms of informing people about the school, but also conversations that I think ironically sold people on the place yeah. because they really got the sense, and I think this does come from perhaps a comparative perspective, they got the sense that Woodbury was not standing still right? and that Woodbury really was a place that had, a, had a, an impulse. And these are some of the first, first phrases you used in your very first speech to the school after you'd been appointed, Byron, that, that, that Woodbury wanted to be a little bit better tomorrow than they were today in the hopes that we were, are a little bit better today than we were yesterday. That's language that really has resonated with now almost a decade of new faculty. Although I am full-time in the classroom, I am still going to be serving as the school's point guard as part of, part of a, a, a big team in the faculty recruitment world, and I'm really, really grateful for that because not only have I found the process rewarding, it's the one part of my service as dean of the faculty that I found I could really, really grab onto and say, you know what, this has really made a difference. I can yeah. look around at the faculty, a lot of the faculty are now here, and I can take a real, have a real sense of, of pride in being part of the, the team that, that brought them here. The world of an independent school administrator in some ways could not be differ more substantially, could not diverge more widely from the world of an independent school teacher. On any given day, my, hmm. my time, my use of my time was unusually unpredictable for someone who was so yeah. used to being on a rigid yeah. F, period be, F period begins at 845 and G period begins right. at 1015. And it took some, some time to get used to that. I eventually did become accustomed to that, and I ended up spending an awful lot of my time, and I think perhaps in retrospect, Byron, perhaps more than, than was productive, more than perhaps you wanted me to, but the part of the job that came the most natural, naturally to me, whether it was working with new faculty in the faculty recruitment process or shortly after their arrival or with existing faculty, was simply um, broadening and deepening my relationships with the people on the faculty. Yeah. And that led me over the, the first several years until COVID, I had two full, um, two met with every faculty member twice a year, yeah. um, formally and then informally much more than that. I spent an awful lot of my time outside of the office yeah. in, the, in the classroom buildings, informally observing classes in case in, with new faculty and in other cases, formally observing classes. And I think that, that 
if I did do any good institutionally in those eight years, it was by creating a sense that there was some sort of personal connection between the world of Anderson and Armfield and Manning and Keenan on the one hand and the Walker Building on yeah. the other. I think you, you did that at a, at a very, very, very high level. Quickly for our, our listeners, when you're looking for a, a, a new member of the faculty, what mm-hmm. are you looking for? What, what are the traits and the qualities that are most important? That, that's part of what is so appealing about that work is its elusiveness. Yeah. And, and Byron, you and I have had so many conversations over the years with, about prospective candidates where we are operating on hunches, mm-hmm. educated guesses. We're working with not fragmentary, but we're working with far from complete information based on recommendations we've received from previous employers or reference calls with previous employers. It is not at all a scientific process. It is very much an art. With that basic backdrop, I am looking for someone that I and we, and when I say we, I mean you and I and department chairs and Matt Blunden as director of athletics and the deans of students with whom we've served, who is basically going to find in the work, well, people who are first and foremost going to have an appetite for the work that we do. They're going to want to do more than simply teach English and coach squash or teach math and, and, and coach, coach football. They're going to want to do the work that we do. And the more difficult part of that process is trying to predict whether or not they're going to have the capacity to do it well and to do it well in the several contexts in which we do our work. Yeah. Whether they're going to be able to connect with kids in the classroom on the athletic fields as an advisor. I remember tons of our conversations just really hinging on emotional intelligence, social yeah. intelligence, obviously a technical mastery of whatever is to be taught or coached, but really more squishy kinds of, of, <laughs> of variables like emotional intelligence, social intelligence. If we want the boys to be humble and hungry, we need to hire a faculty that's humble and hungry. Yeah. We want the boy to be a lifetime learner. We, the faculty needs to, to, to model that. So people who are learners. And then the other thing that I've gotten through you that I really appreciate you modeling is you and, and Crystal, Crystal's your, your better half, you know, you all show a, a love for and a connection to Woodbury, the community that's even bigger than what you're teaching or what you're responsible for. Folks who have the capacity to love this community at least as much of as and maybe even more than their specific responsibility. Those are the those are the folks that turn into the red Karens. Those are the people like John Stilwell, you know, the titans of the past, Nat Job, mm-hmm. uh, Ted Blaine. Those are the you know, those are a couple of other things that I, I know we we look at. Well well to all of our listeners, please join me in thanking Matt for his eight-year run as, as dean of faculty, that is a, a really heavy lift, and you poured a ton of yourself into that, and I personally, but Woodbury, we are, we are all grateful to you for that, Matt, and, and I know you're back in your happy place in, in Anderson Hall, the third floor of Anderson Hall, teaching and, 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 and pouring into the, the world of learning at, at Woodbury. You are one of our great teachers, what, what are your goals as a teacher? And you might just think about the difference between an honors level course for older boys and a third form course for our brand new boys who are just getting accustomed to Woodbury. But as a history teacher, what are your goals? What are you hoping to accomplish? 
another big question. And I think that there are squishy answers to that, to use your phrase, and that there are very concrete answers to that. On the squishiest level, and this is absolutely the case for the third formers I teach, I, I have taught Woodbury's ninth grade history class for a decade now, actually. This is my 10th year. And it was the last major sort of project that I undertook before I entered the dean's office. And, and, and teaching that ninth grade class has become a really important part of the work that I see myself doing in, in my classroom. The most important thing that I try to achieve with those students from day, especially on day one and week one and, and, and the first month, but really throughout the entire year, is that I want to create a classroom environment where, where, when, that they look forward to when they're thinking about their class day when they wake up in the morning. Mm -hmm. And that isn't to say that, that, that it's all fun and games. In fact, far from it. It's not all fun and games at all. I think my, my ninth graders will hopefully tell you that, that when the bell rings, we get down to business right away and we're talking history from bell to bell. I do believe with great conviction that any class or sport at Woodbury has to rest on a foundation of a, of a, of a student's appetite for it, their interest in it, their intrinsic. They just want to be there and want to be part of what's going on in that classroom or on that field or on that stage. I try to do some of this. Well, there's several things going to it. First of all, I try to treat even the new third formers with as much respect as I treat fifth and sixth formers in terms of how I deal with them and the kind of conversations that I might have with them about their work. I don't treat them, I try not to treat them as, as, as young boys who, who need the kind of, of childlike support that a fifth or sixth grader might need. At the same time, I think that my students might tell you that I do, my operating system is the same, but the software might be a little different for my ninth graders than it is for my yeah. older students. And the software for, for ninth graders is less tuned to academic intensity, and it's more tuned to, to move away from the squishy. It's more tuned to making kids feel comfortable when presented with the task of someone who's learning what it means to engage in the academic study of history, what it means to read and analyze secondary sources and primary sources, what it means getting students to, to think about what we history teachers call historical empathy. Yeah. I will talk a lot with my ninth graders about, okay, we've got to get in our time machines and we've got to put ourselves in the, in the, in the shoes of people who lived in a world that was very different from our own. I don't use fancy buzzwords involved that, that might be current in a cultural history class at the college level. It's those kinds of things that I'm really trying to get at, that whether it's ancient Greece, which we're just finishing right now, the Second World War, India, in the years preceding independence, we do a unit on Gandhi, or the Wright brothers' invention of the, the, the airplane. I'm trying to get kids to understand that you can only really, really dive into history and appreciate history and also enjoy history if you appreciate the fact that it is, in the, in the words of a famous historian, it's a foreign country. Yeah. It's not the world in which we live, and part of the fascination for it can be going to a different place and trying to, to sort of understand people and situations that, that aren't current, that, that are not like those that we're dealing with today. Very briefly, with my older students, um, I taught for a decade a, a class in the Constitution. I'm currently teaching a fifth and sixth form elective on the rise of dictatorships in between the two world wars. The software there is different, um, and I am very consciously working with those kids 
to both in terms of how the class is conducted and the materials that they're using to get them ready to, to, for college-level work. And they're reading and writing papers that are similar to the papers that I assigned and, and graded when I, when I was a TA yeah. um, in graduate school. So that, those courses are engaging for me intellectually in ways that the ninth grade class might feel like a lot of the same thing every, every day. However, I get something emotionally and personally out of working with those ninth graders yeah. that I wouldn't trade for anything. Um, I know uh, that you care deeply about the commitment that Woodbury makes in its mission statement to essentially challenge boys to learn how to think and not tell them what to think. Mm -hmm. Can you share with our listeners the distinction? Different Woodbury teachers can take that commitment in different directions and do very different things with it. Nat Job, who taught you, Byron, I think, um, and hired me. I never have been able to, have never tried to teach like him in terms of my teaching yeah. style, because um, I don't think I could. But he was, he was very open about his, his, his personal beliefs in class, about his political beliefs, about his beliefs about any, the historical uh, material that he might be covering. But he did a simply outstanding job making it abundantly clear to his students that he welcomed opposing viewpoints, he wanted opposing viewpoints, and that the interplay between him as a teacher, students who may agree with him, and the students who disagreed with him, that that was really what they that's, were there to do. That's what he wanted. Was exactly. That exchange. He, yeah. he, he, he encouraged it and was able to create an environment where that happened with regularity, and it, it's what has made him in, into one of the one of if, if not the legend um, of the Woodbury History Department. Yeah. Um, I take a very different tack. I tell the boys on the very first day of class that you will never know my, I will never tell you what my party affiliation um, in terms of current politics, you'll never know my position on any issue that we discuss in class. They will roll their eyes when I move into devil's advocate mode when students, as is so often the case, begin to drift sort of in one direction or another. In a way that, that students, I think, don't realize, the first two or three comments about a big question have an outsized impact on where the rest of the class will, will go. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. Which isn't to say that Woodbury students are sheep, but they just start thinking along those lines. And they think, okay, yeah, there's another point. I can make another example. Mm -hmm. Pretty soon, this, this school, the, the class might drift in one direction. And I see it as my task regardless of, of that direction, is to basically encourage students to see the material from a different perspective. And, and this is part of what I actively teach my ninth graders. I encourage them to do this. I, I say, okay, I'm about, to, I'm about to do this. I'm about to play devil's advocate. I'm, I'm about to take a different position because the last three comments have all sort of suggested that you see this in a similar way, and I'm going to provide you with a different point of view. I'm not that explicit with my 11th and 12th graders. I do not take a position as Nat did. I think sometimes it drives my students crazy, and then they, they always will try to say, oh, you, you tipped your hat there, and then I'll immediately sort of tack in a different direction. And, um, restore your exactly, integrity. Exactly. Rest, yeah, restore my integrity as, yeah. as, uh, as what my father once called a flaming moderate. What I'm really saying when I take that position is that within certain boundaries, mm -hmm. And the class that I'm currently teaching right now, I'm going to be spending the entire winter term on the growth of the Nazi party, um, its seizure of power in 1933, 
and we're going to finish with the Holocaust. I will not for a second suggest that the Nazi perspective is a legitimate one. You're not going to turn into a Hitler man, are you? No, I'm not. I'm not going to suggest that, that, that Hitler had a point. <laughs> that we should, that we could we, we could consider. So there are a little something from there are there are guardrails here. But but what I'm really teaching, what I'm trying to teach there, isn't explicit. It's implicit. It's the idea that we have an obligation to consider yeah. points of view that differ from our own, and not only consider them, we have an obligation as citizens to engage yeah. people whose opinions are not uh, do not resemble our own. When I arrived in 2001, political culture in this country, we were coming off a very, very um, controversial election in 2000, right. um, but it was nothing like it is today. And that, I think that role for history teacher or a, history, a teacher in the humanities more general has never been more important than it is right now. And whether you do it the way that Nat did it or the way that I do it, I think that regardless of the content we teach, there's arguably nothing more important to, to what we're doing um, up in the third floor of Anderson right now. Yeah, I think it's really important to challenge boys to interrogate their own beliefs and their own values and to put some pressure on those to, to, to test them. And Byron, you, you mentioned, I can't remember the, the context in which, but it's something that's really stuck in my mind. You mentioned whether it was another school or, I think it was another school, yeah. that that challenged its its teachers and through the teachers its students to consider one yeah. core belief not core belief but one substantial belief that yeah. they have had that they have that where they've changed their mind. Yeah, it's Joy McGrath at St Andrews School in Delaware. Uh, she's the head of school, and one of her goals is that every graduate changes their mind on something of substance that's yeah. during their time in the school. I think that's really interesting. Well, and it's a great way to road test, yeah. right, the, 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 what we've been discussing. The musculature for thinking. Are people really considering right. alternative points of view? Are they really engaging people with whom they disagree? Right. Because if they do, honestly and sincerely, they will change their minds. Because yeah. we all don't, and, and we will continue to change our minds as people who continue to engage as adults. And, and, um, and you would hope that these are the folks who emerge into becoming the most productive citizens in a democratic republic. Yeah. A um, couple of fast facts on, on Matt Bozen for, for our listeners. Uh, he really likes a sweater vest. <laughs> uh, he eats granola and yogurt virtually every day for lunch. Um, and this one's a shocker to me, remains a shocker to me. He's a New York Yankees fan. Um, most of what I know about Matt is that he's really understated and very kind of plain in, in his presentation to the, the world beyond. But for some reason, he's a Steinbrenner man, and he loves the money-making machine. No, that's not true, Yankees. sir. That is not uh, true. Well, it's, it's true, and it's not true. First of all, I, I love how you just... Took the, took, the podcast. Took, well, took the level of the podcast and just threw it from, from, from the top floor into the basement with the, yeah, with, the, with the jab on the sweater vest to begin with. We've moved on from the Woodbury mission. Yeah. Now we're just having fun. <laughs> the New York Yankees thing, if I could take that and actually say something substantive about it as opposed to just the unprovoked jab that, with which you, that you intended it to be. Anybody that's been in my classroom will see up on the wall there's a collage of several pictures of Lou Gehrig. In 2007, I delivered the first of what have become several sermons in St. Andrew's Chapel. 
for some reason, I don't know how this happened. I, actually, I know it, it began with reading a biography of Lou Gehrig the previous summer, and it really became, he became a personal, a real, an object of personal fascination because of his emotional and spiritual strength in a situation that most of us can't even begin to identify with. You might just tell our listeners what he was dealing with. He, he set the consecutive games record until it was broke by Cal Ripken in the 90s. Played 2,130 straight games from 1925 until um, May 1st, 1939. He pulled himself out of, out of the lineup in, in May 1939 and never played another inning um, because he had been diagnosed with um, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, which is now known, of course, as Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, and he died just a little over two years later. And it literally is a disease that eats away at your voluntary and eventually your involuntary muscles. It's a tragic disease that afflicts a relatively small number of people, but here's a man whose success, whose career, whose life was defined by what all of his peers suggested was just extraordinary physical strength and a level of athletic prowess that, that was just extraordinary. Um, and, and that literally, his source of strength, his source of his identity, literally he was seeing it waste away before his eyes. Yeah. The sermon that I gave in, in 2008 was all about that. Um, and my origin and interest in the Yankees find them a fascinating sort of sociological study in what it means to be American. And there are certainly elements of excess in that. I would be much more interested in the Yankees of the 20s and the 30s than I am of the, of the, in the Yankees of, of today. So, but that wasn't what you were getting at. You, well, you were just they, looking they're for... They're one of the few teams that doesn't put the name on the back of the jersey. That is a direct product of the fact that the names went on the jerseys in 1929 and they went on the jerseys in basically the batting order. Mm-hmm. Ruth was number three because he was third in the order. Gary was number four because he was fourth in the order. You are a big Yankees, man. Yeah. Dean, you, you may not know uh, that on this Woodbury podcast, we do have um, a couple of rapid-fire questions. Uh-oh. First question, uh, your favorite meal in the dining hall at Seated Meal? Chicken curry. You may not frequent the fir tree often, but when you go, what do you most enjoy ordering? Cookies and cream milkshake, but I am still mourning the loss of the Moose Tracks milkshake, which happened what about happened? peanuts. It includes peanuts, oh and they, they got rid of it probably seven or ten years ago, and life hasn't been the same. Who's fir tree leading, hasn't been the same. The I don't know, but 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 the tears were the tears milkshake out just because of concerns about peanuts. Well, tears were tears were plentiful, um, and it was a blow. It was a oh blow, goodness. sir. My goodness, we have, that's a slippery slope to declension here, <laughs> institutional declension. In your lifetime, uh, your favorite teacher, why? I'm going to dig way, way back, and I'm not going to talk about my advisors in graduate school because I think the reasons that I, I mean, this is going to be more, it's got to be more than, you've you got to give me more than work. Mr. McCoy, sixth grade. Why? When I walked in his classroom, I wanted to be there. He, more than anybody else, I began with that point when you asked me about my classroom because I still think that that is the most important ingredient to creating over time a successful class. Yeah. And he made me feel that yeah. way. To our listeners, you can, you, you can be sure that Dean Bozen is entirely back in the classroom because he's calling it my classroom with a level of possessiveness that is clearly personal to him. I knew he was going to go there. Let's uh, just, let, I'd just like to say briefly that through... It's a Woodbury through, class. Through a, through a free and uh, an offer with no strings attached whatsoever, <laughs> Dr. Holsey taught in my, in my classroom for several years. I think he enjoyed... It was a, it, it's one of the great... He, in fact, that leads me to my next question. Yeah, okay. Your favorite location on campus? My classroom. 
Anderson 359. Yeah, it's a great one. There's some beautiful windows, great view. Love the Harkness table. It, it's terrific. One or two funny memories from your time at Woodbury that are appropriate for the podcast. The biggest laughs have been without question. Well, they've been in two places. They've been with my advisees in my basement at Cookie Night, sometimes involving students imitating members of the faculty oh, yeah. or so imitating members incredible. of the faculty yeah. or other students, which is something that I don't engage in myself, but I don't stop myself from laughing if it's entertaining. As much as it pains me to say this, Dr. Holsey, a lot of those laughs came with between the two of us. Yeah, I agree. We had, um, we had more than our share of laughs in our time, and hopefully we'll have some more in the well, future. Well, we, we've shared in the absurdity of exactly the, the muck and mire of the human condition <laughs> we, we've been acquainted with in our time uh, here, here at Woodbury. I like to say that I've never laughed harder in my life than I laugh at, at Woodbury, which is one of the reasons why I, I, I love the place the way I do. Okay, one opportunity for you to ask me a question. Dr. Holsey, the faculty and the student body see a very public face. They see, when they look at you, they see the head of school. And that's just as true for a member of the faculty who's been here for 30 years as it is for a new boy third former. And, that, and I'm not suggesting for a second that you as head of school have to conceal your real self to the community. In fact, one of the things that I think has given you credibility with the faculty and with the, the student body is that you are your authentic self. What part of, of, of Byron Holsey does the Woodbury community, whether it's the students, the faculty, the alumni, the parents, what do they not see? Well, that's a, that, that's a great question. I, I think they probably don't see how sentimental I am about things that I, I, I really care about. The, the, the obvious answer to that, unanswered, an elaborate kind of a connected answer to that question that you just posed is just the pain of, of telling a boy that he's got to go home because he's violated the honor system or uh, violated a, a, a major school rule that's a dismissal offense. Uh, those moments are just incredibly emotional and raw and um, they're private and, and they should be. And I probably share that, you know, that, that experience with my predecessors and, and several folks on the Dean of Students team, but it's, it's uh, what people probably don't see and shouldn't see. Matt, is there anything that I didn't ask that you would want me to ask or anything you would like to say before we wrap here? Woodbury is, it certainly is a job in teaching history, serving as an advisor and working on dorm in particular. It is shocking to me that I receive a paycheck for doing those things because they're sources of such joy and satisfaction for me. The thing that I I think is important for, for people to realize, and this is something they might not realize about the faculty experience. My family has called Woodbury home for, this is now 23 years. My wife and I in particular, and my son and my daughter, we feel so tightly woven into this place that it is difficult for us to even think about calling any other place home. Mm -hmm. Byron, you've made, in several contexts, you've made the remarks that you hope that boys, I think you, this is one of the canned lines at graduation, that you'd, that you'd like to think boys to come to think of Woodbury as a second home. Right. For the faculty who stay here for any length of time, it becomes their first home. Yeah. 
the it is not just the residence in which they put their head in a pillow at the end of every night. It's, it's this place. The sheer volume and the breadth of what this place has given to my family, not just to me, over the last several years is simply staggering. It's a debt that I will never, ever fully be able to repay, and it's the reason why there are very few things that on a professional level that I would, wouldn't be at least willing to consider for the school. Unless you're on the faculty, unless you're a, perhaps a, been on the faculty for more than a few years, it's an angle to this place that people might be able to, to, to consider or to think about, to, to perhaps identify with. But I do think it's a unique dimension of, of this place that's experienced only by, by those of us who've been fortunate to live here for a long time. And it's, it's part of what I think is, creates the secret sauce for everyone in the community. It's what helps students who are arriving feel like they are welcomed. It, it's what helps parents feel like they're at a special place when they come visit. It's what helps visitors from other schools, and I heard this so often in my years as dean, say, yeah, there's something about this place that's, that, that's different. As I say to faculty candidates all the time, Woodbury is not perfect. It is emphatically not yeah. perfect at all. The fact that we are full of imperfect people who care very deeply about something that we share in common makes it an, an, un, an uncommon place. It's at this point, it's, it's so deeply part of who I am that I can't think of myself without thinking about, about the school. That's a great way to wrap. Matt, thank you for, uh, for being on the Woodbury podcast and thanks to everybody for tuning in. Until next time, uh, thanks to Matt Bozen, a pillar on our faculty and within the Woodbury community and uh, go Tigers. Go Tigers. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Woodbury Podcast. We hope you found our discussion insightful and engaging. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider subscribing, rating, or leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. Stay tuned for more conversations in the future. And remember, the conversation doesn't have to end here. Connect with us on Woodbury Forest School social media, reach out with your questions or comments, and let's keep the dialogue going. Until next time, take care and go Tigers!